Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Yeah, we're kind of off to a little bit of a technical weirdness, a little bit. Buttons didn't want to work. We're getting started. We're rocking and rolling here on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. You guys can come here and join the live chat, which is already bumping. Apparently, people are very upset about the Central Florida weathers, the tundra of Central Florida. What do you got? A bunch of Steve friends hanging out here. What's going on with you folks? Why are you guys crying about being in Florida? I was in a T-shirt yesterday in Texas. We had a fire last night. Uh, I want to say a, a quick thanks to my friends over at Crystal Welding and uh, C. Roush, who is in our chat oftentimes and made a really cool fire pit. Kids and I roasted some marshmallows. It wasn't cold enough for it, but we did. And uh, let's see. Today is Thursday. It's January the 11th. We're wrapping up this week. What a weird week on so many levels. I think we're just going to be dealing with that for a while. I think that's what this year is going to be. So I'm just trying to settle into it. Let's see. We got a, uh, we got more stuff than should normally fit into a one-hour show. So I may go over, and I don't think anybody will complain about it. But I'm giving you fair warning right up front. That's probably what we're looking at. It's probably how it's coming at you. And uh, so be it. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, my friends over at Catholic Vote real quick first. Let's get that started off. And uh, in fact, some of our stories came from today's loop. Recommend you guys go and check it out. Make sure that you get yourself signed up for it. They are signing up one million members. They're getting they're getting uh, themselves on the way. And one of the things that's really good about being a member of Catholic Vote by being one of the email type folks who's looped in and get the uh, the daily emails that you get updates on some important political candidates that are in your area, people that are interested in fight fighting for uh, faith, family, and freedom. Really important that we move the needle in this year, lest we have to uh, move the uh, the selector switch on your AR, which I'd rather not do. Let's keep it talking. Let's keep it voting. Go to catholicvote.org. You guys can make a donation on the top where it says give. If you see that, you'll probably see one of their stories we're going to cover directly from their own news feed. Catholicvote.org. Put in the email. Put in the zip code and make it so. All right. I think I've shaken, shook, shook some of those things out. Actually, the, the end of today's show, our little palate cleanser that I grabbed for you, which made me laugh as I was just about to get rolling, uh, is exactly how I feel right now. You guys will see that in about an hour, 45 minutes or so. So let's get to that. Let's start off with story number one, because it's not good out there necessarily, and it's still coming our way. The question is this, for those of you talking about weather, you guys didn't know this, but this is what I've got here. Can shoveling snow give you a heart attack? Can it kill you? Could it be the end of it for you? <laughs> the question. I love that they frame it this way. This is coming from the Washington Post. Nothing more fun than hearing the Washington Post try to talk about really dangerous things that many of you have to do every single day during the winter. The question is, is it true that snow shoveling can give you a heart attack? Is it true that snow can kill you? Yeah, I think Joe Dirt in the uh, in the chat just nailed it. If you had the jab, it turns out. They have the science. The first sentence of the science is, snow shoveling can be dangerous. It places stress on the heart, and it's been associated with increased cardiovascular events, particularly after heavy snowfalls, so saith the research. One study showing from before COVID that between 1990 and 2006, that's a 16-year period, there were 195,000 people who were treated for emergencies and medical emergencies and injuries after snow shoveling. And the smallest percentage of them, 
were cardiac related. So in 16 years, there were 1,600 cardiac related events, 100 people, which is less than the number of people who die from falling downstairs every year. So snow shoveling is absolutely critical. Uh, is this fear mongering? Are they setting the narrative? Yes, they are. We talked about the narrative very early on in this week. That's what's going on here, folks. This is, it's not even predictive programming. They're just trying to explain away something that is absurd. And the absurdity would be that you would die from snow shoveling. There's some really, really, really fun quotes in here. The head of emergency medicine, they got somebody from the Cleveland Clinic's Akron General. And he said, people often think that snow is very light and fluffy until they go out and they start shoveling it. <laughs> is that what they think? These people that live in the snow? I talked to Garrett O'Boyle, who shovels snow and cleans off his driveway. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody who's been around it thinks it's fun per se. But this is the fun stuff. And as you guys can probably see on here, we got the math. The math behind it is middle and older age people who shovel heavy snow may be moving approximately 2,000 pounds in 10 minutes. That's the weight of a midsize car. Well, it's 2,000 pounds on an average of 10 to 15 pounds at a time. Nobody's saying that snow shoveling doesn't suck. What I'm saying is the idea that you think it's going to kill you is very funny to me. And uh, the idea that they said that it's not only hard work, but it's one of the most dangerous activities that you ever do. Wow. Not more dangerous. Uh, it's, it's, it's obviously not as dangerous as getting into a car and driving to work. It's not as dangerous as uh, pretty much anything else you do. Drinking alcohol, dating might be more dangerous. But, uh, but yeah, also, when you have the possibility because of the shots that we've got out there in the world and some of the weird cardiac events that seem to have no answer and science is not particularly interested in exploring, that might be the most dangerous thing you do because at least we should be able to explain it away. Thank you very much, Washington Post. Washington Post is going to be featured prominently today. It's going to be featured prominently because they are behind a lot of today's narrative. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And uh, particularly... The insurrection of January 6th, they are all in on that, and they're also all in on COVID still. So basically, the Washington Post, which is a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party, is essentially trying to re-adjudicate 2020, and they are trying to re-adjudicate 2021. Just as Biden got into office, they are going to keep that same sort of narrative push, and they are going to share things with you that probably don't make any sense to you if you are on the political right, but you need to know what people who are your neighbors that don't vote the way that you do, who don't think the way that you do, think. You need to know where they're getting their information. It's worth us knowing it. That's why I dwell on these pages as long and often as I do. Let's do another one. Did you guys know that this is still happening? Did you know? COVID kills, y'all. COVID kills nearly 10,000 a month, hmm. says the WHO. Wait a minute. Are we talking about in the United States or are we talking about worldwide? The picture that you're seeing on the screen, should you be watching on our Rumble channel, that's rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin, and go ahead and give us a thumbs up while you're there. If you're watching on the Rumble channel, what you're seeing is a picture of somebody laying in a hospital bed and being treated by a guy who looks like an orderly or a nurse or some kind of technician or in green scrubs. That person seems to be on a vent based on what I can see from here. And they may or may not be almost dead. That's an Indian healthcare worker in Bangalore, not the United States. Because when the Washington Post needs to scare you about coronavirus deaths, almost 10,000 reported in December, per the article headline and per the first paragraph, it's coming from the WHO, who has a global focus 
and as we talked about the other day, also has a bizarre focus on people who are not doctors, people who are not medical professionals. They're happy to hire people who are like weird trans activists that don't know what to do with their genitals. That seems medically bizarre. But they're telling you that 10,000 people died across the world in December, which lets you know that these holiday gatherings, <laughs> they fueled an increase in transmission of the virus. It reminds me of uh, the guy in, what was he called? Uh, Agent Smith that was in the Matrix. He was worried about the virus of humanity. It almost is like the WHO doesn't like people. And although COVID-19, this is the uh, director of the WHO, although COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency, thank you, Biden, you saved us, the virus is still circulating and changing and killing. <laughs> okay, there was a 42% increase in hospitalizations to basically a number that is completely irrelevant. 10,000 deaths around the world, around the globe is almost nothing. It means nearly nothing. So there you are, Washington Post giving us front and center information. This was on their main page, folks. And they also have another in their most read health section, another coronavirus wave hits the U.S. Uh, as JN1 becomes the dominant variant. If you don't know the dominant variant of coronavirus, then you're un-American. That's what they would have you believe. How bizarre. What a weird time to be alive that they are literally trying to push this fear and death narrative again, despite the fact that basically nobody buys it. Although what you'll see is because people on the political left are reading and sharing and looking at this place for information, they're looking at a Washington Post where democracy, a thing that is uh, the, the narrative of the Democrat Party, where democracy dies in darkness, what we find out is I have to believe this is where those masks are coming from. And if you've traveled recently, you know there's plenty of retards that are out there on the planes that are wearing the masks. Almost everybody in the travel industry that doesn't seem to be a very high information individual. Maybe they're on their feet all day. Maybe they have no time to consume anything except the CNN that's on the uh, up on the uh, what do you call it? The TV in the airport lobby. Maybe that's where they're getting this stuff. But people are masking up. Uh, I also wanted to show you this because this was I, I forgot to comment on it. But let me let me do so. If you look on the side of your screen, you see all the way to the side, um, there's a, a vertical little piece of text. That vertical text, it says that this is provided for free. The Washington, Provo uh, the Washington Post is providing this propaganda news, propaganda slash news, free to all readers because it's a public service that you know that 10,000 people died in the world in December from coronavirus. And I don't think that means they died because they were actually in a car accident, but they knew somebody who had the flu or they knew somebody who had the cold. I think they're trying to say that these people actually died from COVID. But the problem with illegitimizing all of our um, industry and all of our institutions that we used to be able to believe and trust and, and have some sort of faith in, when you do that, we don't know, and we don't know why you're giving us a free news article when your job is to make money, especially when it's narrative-driven, fear-driven, amygdala porn, as you might call it. So very strange, but thank God they're out there. It, it got me down this little rabbit hole, folks. It got me down a rabbit hole of thinking about COVID, and I want to do one more little thing. One of the things that I remember is that we talked about how hospitals were incentivized to kill patients. Do you remember that? That was sort of like the, the, the highline version of it. That was like the the fear-mongering version that hospitals were killing people off for money. And so I went down this little rabbit hole to try to figure out, number one, is there still money for each coronavirus patient? It appears there is. I'm not 100% sure because that's the way that government sort of writes things. They don't come out and tell you anything, obviously. Um, but what I did find was this. 
What I found is that uh, a fact check from this year, from March of 2023, this is coming from the AP, which I absolutely love because the AP is happy to knock down straw men, which we talked about the other day. COVID, uh, hospital COVID payments tied to patient treatment, not death. So they are going to debunk that narrative that every time someone came in with the coronavirus, what they saw were green signs if they could kill them, the green, the green dollar signs. And so the claim was is that U.S. hospitals are earning $48,000 uh, for a government subsidy every time a patient that dies from the coronavirus care, the COVID-19 care in their units. And the AP says, no, that's false. Of course, that's false. They would never do that. Hospital industry officials and public health officials can confirm that the federal government only provides hospitals with enhanced payments for treating said COVID-19 patients. But the payments are currently only applicable to those who are on Medicare. Okay, though, that's an important distinction. So it's not everybody. It's the Medicare patients. It's not just if people showed up, then they let them die and they had a financial obligation or they had a financial incentive to allow them to fail. But here's what's weird about that. Number one, who's on Medicaid? Sorry, who's on Medicare? Medicaid is for people who are indigent. Medicare is for people who are old enough to qualify for it. So the old, the elderly are the ones who are on Medicare. And what did the coronavirus kill? People who were of a certain age. That was pretty obvious to us. We've talked to some other folks. Uh, I've got an interview coming up about some of the military professionals who were looking down the line at what was coming in the information <clears throat> and people who are in the military, generally speaking, are not going to be in danger from coronavirus death. They're not going to be one of the 10,000 that died because they went to a Christmas celebration somewhere in the world. No. Now, if you listen to people that are on the political left, you would believe that 50% of the people who got the virus dead, which is wild. And there are still some people out there that think that it is fatal. We talked about Howard Stern. Howard Stern basically operates as though the contracting of the virus equals a fatality, like a uh, a Mortal Kombat-style Sega Genesis fatality where your spine is ripped out and that's the end of you. No, 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 no. That's silly. But it didn't stop people who were fearful. And interestingly enough, if we only had old people on aggregate that were dying of this disease, which is mostly the case, and the government was paying them. The interesting thing is they're not incentivized for treatments that involve their death. Obviously, that seems pretty morbid, and I don't think they could ever put that into a government policy. But what is not discussed here is the fact that there's another argument to be made, that the actual treatment itself resulted in death, that the treatment protocols were bad. They were uh, written up by people who were not interested in saving the patients. That's pretty much the real argument. So once again, this straw man is pushing something aside that would say, hey, is there any uh, validity to this? If you were a serious journalist, what you would say is, okay, well, the context piece, which they would love to normally put in, uh, lacks context. The context is, is that there's some real problems with remdesivir and some of the other drug protocols and putting people on a vent where you literally take their ability to control their airway away and you put it into the hands of a respiratory therapist or a pulmonologist, or an anesthesiologist, and those people now are going to be responsible for their airway, and these people end up having negative outcomes because they are no longer fighting for their own airway, for their own ability to breathe. That seems like that's where the real discussion should be, but we're not going to have honest discussions because we're talking about the AP. Uh, last little piece on this. Let's throw it on the screen here. This is the little bit that comes from the Office of the Inspector General for Health and Human Services. I shared it with you only because, like I said, I tried to go out there and find out if coronavirus payments were still getting done. And it does appear that that's actually expected to go through 2024 right now. 
Uh, this little article is undated, but it talks about the CARES Act. It talks about the Payroll Protection Act. And cumulatively, they were known as the provider relief funds that were being given to hospitals in order to treat people who were getting uh, treated for coronavirus and being tested for it. And so under those terms, it appears that they actually extend through. The idea was is that they were supposed to stop surprise billing and things that were considered out of network for people so that people were not hit with this and then suddenly devastated. Once again, yet another reason why our federal government has found to hand out money to its preferred industries and to improperly use your money. That's what federal governments do. Let's talk about your money for just one second. Things you could do with your money, should you be so inclined. You could spend it on some disaster preparedness. You could spend it on getting ready for whatever's coming. And God knows what's coming. Honestly. No, God only knows. That's the only people who know. Uh, check out some of the things that are over at 4patriots.com slash Kyle. You can go to 4patriots.com slash Kyle. You can get some emergency food. You can head yourself against disasters. You can check out these cools. I, I don't know what else to call them. They call them like a Liberty radio, a Liberty self-charging with four different options, the hand crank and the batteries and the solar and all this stuff. Uh, I'm more into the calling it the zombie protection radio because I see them in every zombie thing. There's also, if you guys look at the bottom here, where uh, we've got a guy that's continually throwing his power cell. It's a solar chargeable power cell. I used to have one of these when I was working for the Bureau. Nothing better than putting that up in your windshield and letting it charge up. And then when you're on foot, you just toss it into your bag and you never know when you might need it because if your phone starts dying, you lose your comms. Continuity of comms is a safety thing, both for law enforcement and in, in disasters or emergencies. If you can't reach out to people, you're going to be in trouble. So check out 4Patriots, the number 4, Patriots with an S, dot com slash Kyle, or just use my promo code K-Y-L-E. We have the same promo code everywhere you go, 4Patriots.com slash Kyle, and uh, check them out. Get yourself set up. You never know. It's coming, whatever it is. Something's coming. We can't figure out exactly what it is, but we are getting a little instinct of it. I'm not done with COVID yet. You guys may have discovered. I'm not done. We're going to keep going. <laughs> Regardless of whether you like it or not. Here <clears throat> is a little piece from Catholic Vote. And what we know is, is that Anthony Fauci is really not convinced that what he did and what he recommended and cl cl closing all these schools for COVID that it negatively affected kids. Well, that seems like a problem because I'm pretty sure that all parents can pretty much recognize this. Anthony Fauci told members of Congress on Tuesday that he's not, quote unquote, convinced. This is the same guy that said he doesn't need religion. Do you remember that? He doesn't really need religion because his ethics are superior to a church. That's, that's called pride. My buddy Garrett O'Boyle would refer to that as hubris, both accurate. And when you have such a thing, you cannot see fault in yourself. And that's where Anthony Fauci always seems to land. The arrogance of this man, pride, the original sin, it's pretty incredible. And the fact that he's out there and testifying to this, amazingly enough, he also could not remember. He went to the Jim, Jim Comey uh, and the Chris Ray School of Testification. Should we make that a word? Testification? The idea is that this guy has testified saying he's not convinced about what he did was wrong. And more importantly, he's really not sure... What actually went on? I mean, it's, it's, it was so long ago. It was years ago. How could he ever remember exactly what it is he did? Now, ask him about anything that he is, uh, ask him about anything he's ever done. Man, I bet you that guy's got his accolades. All, like people who, who praised him, top of mind awareness. But things that he might be held accountable for, definitely not. The New York Post noted that he made the stunning admission on the second and final day of his 14-hour closed-door interview these are all obviously leaked with the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Just remember, 
the Republicans have handled all this stuff, okay? They've handled it perfectly. They're solving all your problems. They had a closed-door hearing with Anthony Fauci. End of discussion. I don't want to hear any more things saying the Republicans didn't solve the problem. Just so you guys know, that's what their solution looks like, a hearing. It doesn't look like doing anything about it. It doesn't look like holding anybody accountable. If that's what you were thinking, you were mistaken. You didn't understand where government goes. But they did hold a, a flippin' hearing. And uh, then they showed some government statistics saying that reading scores among nine-year-olds had plummeted over the course of the pandemic to their lowest point in 30 years. That's not Fauci's fault. How could that be Fauci's fault? He just recommended that the schools were closed. The fact that kids stopped reading when they were at home with their parents, that's on them, right? In some ways, I actually agree with that. In some ways, I do have to say, you know, he's not totally wrong. It is your responsibility to educate your own children. I think that uh, between... Randy Weingartner, who is basically a screaming Yeti and a disgusting, disgusting, masculine-looking female. It's like I said, the trans movement was hard on the ugly women, hardest than harder than anybody. Uh, I call them homely women on on the internet last night. But uh, that and and Anthony Fauci, the two biggest advocates for homeschooling, and the coronavirus actually put millions of kids on the on the track to being educated by their own parents. We went, you know what? The internet exists. The world is not the same thing that it was. Thank you for reminding us. A lot of times, incremental technology and gains, the the gains that we would get from disruptive technologies, it should have disrupted the education industry. What should have happened was, we should have had, probably by the time that I got out of high school, that's probably about where it started, somewhere between let's say 1995 and 2005, when I finished college, and, I'm, and yes, I did take an extra year in college, but as I, as I got out of school completely, was about the time that the the normal method of educating your kids was, um, it was obsolete. It no longer made any sense to anybody that was paying attention. I don't think it made any sense. And the reason is, is because the disruptive technology of the internet and being able to digitize all the books. Do you guys know why people used to go to university? Do you know why it was such a big deal? It's because that's where the books were. Universities used to rank themselves by the number of volumes in the library. That's the differential between colleges and universities, as I understand it. It was literally, how do we figure out, you know, where all the knowledge is? Who's got the best access to it? Then they started the interlibrary loan program. Some of you have used those for research if you went to a school and had to do something like that. And what happened was, is we actually moved onward right about then from whether it mattered. You could get a good education almost anywhere. And then the internet basically blew that out of the water and we didn't notice it. We sort of just didn't pay attention. And then when they realized that, oh, well, we can have teachers just sit in a safe classroom and educate people remotely, they decentralized it on accident. And I actually think they disrupted their own industry. They are now shrieking to try to bring it back. And Anthony Fauci failing to realize that he was responsible with some of his recommendations for this, this bad program. It was it was partially the Fauci plan of shutting things down, but it was also partially the fact that teachers didn't want to come into the office. And they were scared, even though most of them are young. And both of those things combined led us to a kind of an interesting point in American history. I think a tipping point for homeschooling, which will take us back maybe 200 years, but with resources that we couldn't have imagined even 10 years ago. There's curriculums left and right. And uh, my wife has got my, my daughter reading. There's nothing more exciting than seeing your kid read and open up the entire world. I remember like reading Rainbow as a kid. Maybe you guys do too. Honestly, the minute that I could open up a book and, and take information from somebody else that I didn't have to consume from my folks or from any other approved source. I could grab a book off the shelf and open it. It was game on. And 
A lot of kids, once they get that point, that's the single most important thing, teaching kids how to critically evaluate information, teaching them how to take it in on their own. You know, math, most of you will never use, not in a meaningful way, but man, reading and being able to discern what is and what is not accurate in truth. Last night, I caught my six-year-old uh, reading her children's Bible. She was looking at pictures and kind of scanning through and kind of, uh, you know, assessing what the uh, the stories were that were in it. And that is a proud moment for uh, for a parent. And I, I actually do credit these clowns because right when this was happening, it was three years ago, my kids were pretty young. And it literally put us on a path that changed the trajectory. I think a lot of you may see that. Those of you who are able to and pull your kids out, I think you'll be much happier in that uh, in that uh, homeschooling experience. And it's not nearly the weirdness that it was before. <laughs> when I was a kid, it was always kind of frowned upon. Also, I don't think par parents took it as seriously because they didn't have the resources they have today. Kind of amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, we got a whole bunch more junk to keep covering. Let, let's, do, uh, let's do something that I don't normally do. I'm wearing red. I don't even know if you can buy this, but uh, I think GOB is in the chat, so I will plug the sweatshop right here. This is the-suspendables.com, the-suspendables.com. Again, the easiest thing that you can do if you want to support the suspendables and you want to show your support in public is this little pin here, which is fantastic. Let me go full screen with this. Kaboom. Look at that. It looks great. You can get three of them, 30 bucks. Just go in and add them in the bundle. Put my name in there as the promo code. K-Y-L-E, save 10% on everything. You get free shipping. So three of those for 30 bucks. They ship out. They're fast. They're super easy to get. You can give them as gifts in a last minute uh, pinch and worth your time 100% doing that. We've got the uh, the patches too if you're like a CrossFit type. If you if you walk around or if you're George Hill and you walk around with a plate carrier on, go to the-suspendables.com. I will tell you without any shame, if you look on that page right there, the green um, rifle shirt, the last line strength, I, I wore the last line Substack shirt yesterday and a pair of Ranger panties that actually had the last line emblem in green. I think they're one-offs. I'm not sure if they're they're selling them on the uh, on the site, but I wore those yesterday and jogged around and um, nothing like skies out, thighs out to get uh, people looking at you. It's only like in the 50s right here, so it's plenty of t-shirt and, and uh, Ranger panty weather. If you guys live in Florida where it's freezing and it's 51 degrees, consider maybe you just need to move more. Don't snow, don't, don't, don't need show, uh, show snow, snow shoveling. I can't even say it. Don't do that. That might kill you, but go for a jog. You'll be happy you did. All right, so let's press on. How about some news about what's going on in the world? This is going to be very exciting to you guys. Kaboom, there he is. Chris Christie, he's dropped out of the race. And when I say dropped out of the race, I don't mean that he uh, hit the ground and fell, because you would have known. No, he just said, I'm no longer going to be running for president, which we all knew the minute he started running for president. Interestingly enough, he was caught on a hot mic kind of noting that none of the other candidates are serious or have any chance. And I think that he's saying the quiet part out loud on accident. It's actually really helpful. Like I said, I, I told you guys, and you all probably know, that uh, this was never going to be a successful run against a Donald Trump. It's not going to happen. But let's listen to some audio of Chris Christie right after, and he's just kind of telling people, like, this is how it is. He's actually not a dumb guy at all. He never has been. But his his political facade is awful and it's really unlikable. I think he's probably very bright in in um in like back channels and if you dealt with him one on one, you wouldn't hate it. And I and I don't hate listening to this. This is a very sober assessment from a very heavy guy that, you know, doesn't look like he could ever be president in this country, not in the era of TV. But here he is. Let's hear him in his own words. You know. Forget she spent 68 million. Yeah. I mean, oh. Like well, when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent 68 million so far, just on TV. Spent 68 million so far. 
59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She hasn't She's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes. Always. I, t- you know, I talked to DeS- DeSantis called me, petrified that I would. He's probably getting out after Iowa. Well, <laughs> Is DeSantis getting out after Iowa? Uh, I don't know why the audio cut out there or why they didn't decide to leak that piece, too, or whoever had it has chopped it. But that's the piece that's all over the web. Uh, a lot of people, Laura Loomer and uh, uh, DC Drano and some others were sharing this all over social media. But yeah, like, are, why are these people even sticking around in the race? The amount of money they're spending to $60 million on each of their campaigns to lose. They're not even close. I mean, in the polling, the, the likability of it, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, whether you like it or not, I don't care who you want to vote for in the primary. This is Donald Trump's race. It always was. Like I said, the deep state, the administrative state, the powers that be, the media have ordained him the problem. And that's how you're going to get what's going to happen. That's how you're going to get the person who is going to come after you full bore. He's got no other choice. And and honestly, people on the political right, if you are lowercase c conservative, lowercase l libertarian, if you're looking who it is that they're scared of and who it is that has to be, you know, the nominee who's got to go head to head. We got to have a 2020 rematch. They've already named it. They told you they want to talk about COVID. They want to talk about January 6th. January 6th is directly related to what happened in November of 2020. All of these things have to happen. So we're doing it again, folks. I mean, that's the reason. I, I actually said that like based on what happened in 2020 and then 2022's election might be the last one. It was such an eked out like non-victory for people in the Republican Party that it just kicked the can down the road. And now we're going to re-adjudicate the last two elections in November of this year. I think it's pretty apparent to me. And I appreciate that Chris Christie knows it. Nikki Haley's going to get smoked. I don't know about this whole thing about land for China. I don't think she gave land for China, but they're tolerating certain things in the Republican Party that tells you they are not conservative with a lowercase c. They don't want to conserve anything. They're more than happy to give our country away. They really are. And I guess that kind of is an interesting sort of attempt to segue. The people that are helping them do that are the folks that are working for my ex-girlfriend, the FBI. And here we go. Are you ready? Here's the story of the day. I called this episode Entrapped on purpose because we're going to talk about something that's truly, truly upsetting and also incredibly normal. There's nothing weird or uh, unusual about this. And this story actually broke a little while ago, but this is another good cover down on it. It was done yesterday at The Intercept. Who... They have, a, they have an ideological bend. There's no doubt about it that The Intercept, when they cover these stories, they believe that the reason the FBI is unfair is because they unfairly target black and brown people. I've been told as much by the people that write there, at least Trevor Aronson, who covered this. This one is done by um, Murtaza, I don't know, Hussein. You can tell by the name. This guy is looking at this particular ideology and saying, oh, well, it's the FBI targeting black and brown people. Don't get me wrong. The FBI has been very unfair to a lot of people and Muslim people in the post 9-11 era were 100 percent targeted in a meaningful way. Okay, that happened. They definitely did not have a perfect record on this. But to say that it was only that we can look forward and say, no, no, no. What they did is they basically created a playbook which Trevor Aronson wrote about in his book called The Terror Factory, and I highly recommend the TED Talk once again if you're going to spend 15 minutes and understand the way the FBI operates. Not his conclusions about why, but the way, the methodology 
The terror factory is the way it's done. And what do they do? They find low information, people that have either mental problems or financial problems, or they are down on their luck. And then they go and they target them and they offer them an opportunity. Again, I have said, um, I've said this a couple times in other people's podcasts and I, and I do it on mine occasionally and I'll do it today. Here's a good little snippet for you. If you're online, which most of us are, and you engage in a back and forth, whether it be in DMs, whether it be on channels, whether you be on a, a 4chan or a Reddit or any of these kind of things, if you're on Facebook groups, and there is somebody who is encouraging your worst ideas specifically, and especially the ones that involve violence. It's like, we're going to overthrow the Capitol, right? If you hear Ray Epps coming out of somebody's mouth online, and they're typing it up to you, and that person not only is going to back up your, your worst ideas, but they want to help you carry them out, and they're really driving you to help do it. Hey, let's meet up. Let's do this. Let's make this happen. Worst ideas want to help you carry them out. And the last piece is they know somebody. They know a guy. Throw away. They know a guy. And that guy can help you accomplish whatever it is that you need for the exact amount of money that you have. That's a Fed. That's an undercover employee for the FBI or the DHS. That is someone who is basically paid, whether as a CHS or as an actual W-2 federal employee, an undercover, they are trying to move you along so that you can also be someone who commits a terrorism. Just do a terrorism and that person is going to get paid out or they're going to be able to meet their legal quotas. They're going to be able to push the stats up so that somebody hit the metric to get a green or a gold, little stars, as they do in a field office evaluation, and that person gets a bonus. I'm not making this up. This is not like, uh, this is not speculation. This is how it works. You have to drive the case along. Simple example. We're going to talk about this kid who is an autistic teen at 16 years old. They love people that are young and stupid. That's fantastic for them. Okay, we had a guy who was a so-called white supremacist who was saying white supremacist stuff, whatever that means. I'll just put that in air quotes, scare quotes. He was saying those things online. He was an active duty Marine in a East Coast military base. You guys can guess where it might be known as the uh, what do they call it? The uh, the wayward school for boys or the school for wayward boys. And long and short of it is here he was saying stupid things. So what did they do? They invested security resources because they put a surveillance team on him. That literally moved into a hotel for three months. My team went down for two separate two-week deployments. We followed this guy even though he was sitting on a military base, even though he was following orders. He didn't even bring his gun on base in violation of the standing orders against having a firearm that wasn't in the armory. He kept it at a gun store where he rented space. And then what did he do? He decided to meet up with an undercover because that's what happens. And the undercover is like, hey, man, let's do a terrorism. Are you in? Let's kill cops. Let's kill black cops. You want some? And he's like, no, nah, man, I think I'm trying to get a discharge. I'm trying to get out of the military. And then I want to meet a girl and I want to hold hands with her. And maybe that would be good for me, like emotionally and sexually. And then also maybe I could get a job and then maybe she would stick around. And then maybe I'd have a girl in my life. And then maybe I wouldn't hate black people as much. Maybe I can get myself out of this. I just need to get out of the military that's really where I'm at. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then a terrorism, right? A terrorism. Are you into it? Shoot up a police station. And he's like, ah, I don't want to let you guys down. Like, maybe later. But no. That's the FBI driving a terrorism narrative. Driving somebody in a white supremacy setting. And what do we do? They kept that going for months. Multiple meetups. Long-term commitments. Pull cameras outside of his barracks. 
in the dormitories or barracks on a Marine base. Yeah, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Is that normal? Is that okay? Should we be okay with that? I, I like. Is that how you want your money being used? Again, the question about the FBI is very simple. It may not be legally known as entrapment, but morally, all of us have a sense that what that that little interaction that I described to you, which was, by the way, very, very gentle, it was actually probably a lot more aggressive than that in real life. All of that stuff is what we are spending $11 billion on. And would you spend your $11 billion on that if you had a chance? I don't know. Let's do the intercept story. This guy who was uh, arrested, his name was Humza Had, and he had cleared security in the Denver International Airport when the FBI showed up to arrest him. He was an 18-year-old who was diagnosed with a developmental disability on the autism spectrum. Um, at the time of the arrest, he was reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which is written for elementary school kids. He was developmentally delayed. He had gone to the airport on December 18th to fly to Dubai, right, because he was going to join ISIS. Because that's what they're looking for is an 18-year-old that the FBI has helped recruit to go to ISIS. Was ISIS ever involved? Probably not. That's not how it works. In the criminal complaint, there were actually four FBI undercover agents who all kind of rotated on talking to this guy for years, starting when he was about 16 years old. After the initial uh, hearing, family members found out that he uh, had been basically recruited online by FBI agents and undercovers, people who are acting in a covert capacity. For years. And rather than try to fix him, or rather than try to reach out to parents, which is what you might think that your federal government would do when your 16-year-old is out there having terroristic ideas and has no ability to accomplish them, they just waited until he turned 18. And he could go get himself a passport, and he could have a little bit of money, which they helped him out with, and then he goes and he decides to fly to join ISIS, but the ISIS is actually the FBI. How else do we deal with this? This is the same story that happened in Whitmer's case. In Gretchen Whitmer's case with the Michigan Wolverines, when everybody in the car is a Fed except the guy they're trying to arrest, does that seem like the way that you want your dollars spent for the federal government? There's a big reason why this narrative has to continue. There has to be lots of terrorisms, and there have to be lots of very, very bad people. And it doesn't matter if they're black or brown or any other flavor of color that the, the human skin can take. It doesn't matter if they're white supremacists. They're all equally good. And so for the political left to push the narrative that the FBI is really, really good because they're going after the MAGA people, they are missing out on the historical pattern that has existed for a very long time. And it's just a matter of time before they decide to come after them. It just depends on where the funding is. That's what's going on here. This kid is 16 years old, otherwise would have been like in his uh, relative's basement posting offensive content, similar to a white supremacist or a proud boy. And the FBI doesn't spend enormous resources uh, trying to entrap them. Yeah, actually they do as you guys have found out. So The Intercept is slightly wrong about this. And unfortunately, we have people in our national security space that are professors at various things. You can get a quote about it. But the reality is, is that all the cases that I've seen, all of them are the same. White supremacists, um, you know, Islamic terrorism. They use the same exact playbook. They're all counterterrorism. They all come out of the same group, which is called CTD, the FBI's counterterrorism division. And those are the same people that sent out the letter saying that they were going to watch parents at school board meetings with the EDU officials threat tag. Are you starting to put it all together here? Because that's what it looks like. When your budget is tied to terrorism, your goal is to find 
terrorism, not disrupt terrorism that is actually there organically. And when it goes away, we just send those people to other places. Wouldn't that be the case? Wouldn't they go, well, you know what? We've noticed that we've lost a bunch of kids at the border and maybe we should go after child sex trafficking. That would be good. Let's surge to where it makes sense. No, you are a counterterrorism agent and you work for someone who's made their bones in the counterterrorism division. That person needs there to be lots of counterterrorism work. And so in order to continue doing that, they will create fantasy events like this one. He was, quote unquote, known to police for his social media posts about the time of his 16th birthday. How many idiots are out there at 16? How many of you were retards at 16 years old doing things that were overly aggressive? And if you had the ability to transmit it out into the world where the FBI might be waiting to catch whatever crazy small little thing you said, a tweet that nobody else saw, a Reddit post that nobody else was looking for because there's keyword searching. They have tools that will scroll social media like social spider. And there's a couple of other ones out there that are of varying capabilities, but they can hone in on keywords in areas to target the so-called threats. And if they pick up an underage juvenile, it doesn't matter. They'll just cultivate him like this until that person is of the age of majority where they can arrest him. Does that worry you? It worries the hell out of me. And I saw it. I saw this stuff. When we went out there and, and did the, um, the surveillance on these types of cases, more often than not, and this is one of the reasons why I don't feel bad about what we did, the stuff that we were writing down was exculpatory. You familiar with that term? Exculpatory means that what we witnessed actually went to the defense of the person. If they were discovered, they would go and they would look at what we were watching. They would look at our daily reports and they'd be like, this person is not a threat. We didn't comment with anything other than on this time this happened, on this time this person was met, so on and so forth. We would just describe what their daily patterns were. And those daily patterns were not a threat. And I would say as much if asked under testimony, which of course they would never want to do. Most of these people plea out because they're indigent and they have a crappy public defender. And the public defender is basically incentivized to take on more cases and settle them. So just be aware, this is what the, the MO of our federal government is. This is what the entrapment looks like. And it's really strange. Now, here's a fun thing. That kid is going to face 20 years for material support of terrorism. Many of them plea out for about that much. I've seen very similar cases for people who maybe don't belong in public, who need some help. This kid had autism. He was, uh, you know, sort of developmentally delayed. But then you've got this stuff going on. Meanwhile, we're sending Proud Boys to jail for 20 and 30 years. How about this nonsense? You guys see the story already as well. Navy sa uh, sailor accepted bribes from China. I don't know how you're a sailor. You work for the Navy and you get a bribe. It's not really a bribe, is it? It's a payment for espionage. Transmitting sensitive information to a Chinese military agent, which is a collector. This person, uh, this, this, this Chinese national who goes and joins the United States Navy and starts giving things away, received 27 months, that's the sentence, 27 months and a $5,500 fine. This is uh, published by Sarah Carter's website. 26-year-old petty officer, Wenhang Zhao pled guilty at the end of last year for accepting bribes from the Chinese in exchange for non-public U.S. intelligence that he collected while performing his duties. You notice it doesn't say classified? That's kind of interesting, too. The question is this, whether or not it's classified is irrelevant. When it's national security information, it's national security information. That's the way the statute is written. That's the way, the way they're going after Trump, by the way, too. It's not about whether it's classified. Sentenced to 27 months in prison, he'll see probably 50% of that, most likely, based on the First Step Act, because this is his first problem. He received $14,866 in over a dozen separate payments. Those are small payments. Do you guys want to know when I say that things like Charles McGonigal is not dealing with money that is transactional espionage? There's a real number 
When you look at it, when you work these types of cases, there are numbers that look like transactional amounts of espionage, tens of thousands of dollars. That's really more reasonable. Tens of thousands of dollars are more reasonable, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is not a way to get rich. You know how desperate you have to be for this kind of thing? $14,866 is going to be the amount of money that you take in to betray the federal government that you work for under the threat of going to jail for, you'd think for life, wouldn't you? Nah, it's just going to be a year. And he didn't even have to pay back all the money. He only has to pay back 5,500 bucks in fines. He actually took in more money. And based on what a naval, a Navy uh, sailor makes, that's actually not the worst deal. I think I was making like 17 or $18,000 a year when I was a, uh, when I was an E3 and E4. So low level people like this, he's a petty officer. I guess he made a little bit more money than that, but isn't that wild? The numbers that we think, the numbers that we would think for betraying this country are not what they are uh, in reality. That's not what they're actually being sentenced with. All of this stuff is kind of crazy. And the other funny thing is to think that the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is not out there trying this on a lot of people. Like, that's false. Of course they are. This is a standard thing. And they are happy to get people to take what they call, first, it's it's public information. Go get me some public stuff. That's how they start. Okay, so if you guys are looking at what it looks to be groomed by an intelligence service, it's getting people to say yes, just like a salesperson. If I could do this thing and you could do that, would that would that be interesting to you? Well, yeah. Okay, if I could do this, would you do this? It's the train of yeses. And the train of yeses is get some stuff that I can get like off Google. Well, like, oh, they just want some Google stuff. They're going to give me 800 bucks for it. Awesome. No big deal. You're saying yes. You're saying yes. Hey, uh, wasn't there something in a briefing you guys had the other day? It's not classified. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not classified. So then they give it to you. And you get those people saying yes until either they're caught or they're not. And they give away something really serious. Like, I don't know, like the plans to one of our supercarriers. All this stuff is dangerous. But the thing that blows my mind is 27 months for legitimately treacherous activity. I don't want to use the word treason, but treacherous activity and giving away secrets from a trusted position inside our military. It's compromise. It's compromise. And then meanwhile, you've got uh, people like Steve Baker, journalists that are going to jail. We've got 60 days in prison, uh, which ended up being a little bit shorter by, um, by Owen Schroyer, right? We went after journalists who were literally exercising their rights as Americans to say things that were not dangerous. It's problematic, is it not? A little bit of good news. Ray Epps got off light, as you guys saw, 12 months of probation. We actually have a sort of a nice little analog to that. Stephen Horn, whose case I've been watching for a little while, he's actually squared away and, and, and you know, he seems like a really nice kid. He's very young. Baker's been following this too. Got a very unusual light sentence as well yesterday. He read a statement to the judge. I'm going to play the statement for you. It's worth hearing these things. The most important piece is that we continue to ride these and hold the judges accountable so that if giving away classified or, or intelligence information to a Chinese spy results in 27 months. All things should be treated uh, accordingly. And, and Congress actually has a big rule in this. They're the ones who actually set the statute and the minimums and the maximums for these types of jails or for these types of offenses against U.S. code. So wouldn't it be nice if we saw just a little bit of parity here? If there was some even-handedness? It would go a long ways to establishing credibility within the judicial system, which we don't necessarily have and we don't necessarily feel at this exact moment. Let's play uh, Stephen Horn's video real quick. Give you, I'm not going to play the whole thing. It's about three minutes. You guys can find this um, on social. But if you guys want to listen to a little piece, here's a, test, a little taste. This is my statement that I read to the judge today before my sentencing. Now I'm reading it for the public. Your Honor, I appreciate this opportunity to address you directly. Whenever a journalist or other member of the media is covering an unstable or tumultuous situation like a riot, they must grapple with balancing the public interests in whatever events are occurring against the potential impact of their presence. 
I attempted to keep this principle in mind while I was on Capitol grounds, observing the human dynamics in each room I entered, whether my presence and behavior was raising or lowering the average temperature, and trying to avoid being in the way of police carrying out their duties. To the extent that my presence emboldened violent rioters or hindered police officers from doing their duty, I am genuinely sorry. To the extent that my joining in a chant of USA in the crypt under the rotunda emboldened violent rioters or hindered police officers from doing their duty, I am sorry for that as well. I cannot stand before you today and tell you that my judgment was without error. But what I can speak to with 100% certainty is my intent. I won't belabor the point by rehashing testimony you have already heard. I have attempted to be forthright from day one about my behavior and motives. In reaching out to the FBI and conducting an interview with them, in numerous media interviews and public statements I have made, and in sworn testimony at trial. However, I will admit that I allowed the prosecution to get under my skin during cross-examination, and for that failure in my demeanor, I apologize to the court. That's probably good enough right there. So he apologizes to the court. He reached out to the FBI. Let's just do another quick lesson. I've already told you how to spot a Fed, either in the chat or in, in your own life or in your DMs or whatever else. Let's do the second piece of that, which is do not talk to the FBI. There's another story we're going to have here in just a second. We're going to talk about that. Stop talking to the FBI people. That's generally the case for law enforcement. It's very much the case for the FBI. They're not first responders. They are not trying to solve an imminent problem. They are trying to do what their job is, which is to go out and interview people that they're told to interview. And if that name that comes across their desk, which I've made fun of many times, the, 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 the conveyor belt of names or the ticker tape of names that they're just going to go talk to, sometimes it is that stupid. It's a lead from somewhere else. They don't even know what it's about. They don't need to entrap you. They don't need to say anything, but they're going to listen to what you say and they're going to just hone in on things. I've been out on interviews that were really dumb. A guy who was like using an eBay account and pretending to be a government agent, which is stupid, by the way, and who cares? But we had to check it out. And when I got there to talk to the guy, the first thing he did is said, come on in, sit down in my house. Mistake number one. But I'm pretty good at talking to people, as you guys can tell. And I'm sitting down, and the first thing he does is he reaches over, and he unplugs his router. And I was like, what in the actual hell? And so I go, uh, why did you do that? <laughs> like, why did, you just, why did you just reach over and unplug your router in front of two FBI agents? And he goes, oh, uh, I thought you might be here about my search history. That's a big red flag. Nobody made him say that. And it was really weird and stupid. Here's the thing. I don't actually really care, and I don't think anything came out of this. But what I will tell you is he goes, I thought you were here about my search history. And I go, oh, well, what about your search history would I be interested in? And he was like, well, I do a lot of research into like terrorist groups and stuff, and like I'm a student. And I go, oh, okay. Where are you a student? Well, I'm, I'm I'm at this university and this and this and that. So he explains it to me and I go, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, how long have you been studying there? Well, I started studying in this thing and then I started going there and then, um, you know, then I took like a couple semesters off and I go, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so you're back studying there now? No, no, I still, I'm still on a break from that. <clears throat> so what you're telling me, and I rephrase this for him, what you're telling me is that you were a student and you were studying counterterrorism and now you're not a student and you're still studying counterterrorism, and you're afraid of your search history, and you unplugged your router. Am I getting that correctly? That's not why I was there, folks. I was there because he had pretended to be a federal agent online. And then he's like, yeah. I go, well, what kind of stuff did you research? Uh, a lot of ISIS and like some of the things. I watched some of their videos. It's like, man, what's wrong with you? 
Why are you talking to the FBI, you clown? Now you've just made more work for me, number one. And number two, what are you doing? Well, like, how foolish are you? Also, not a cybersecurity expert. As someone just mentioned in the chat, Yoma just said, <laughs> unplugged router is not going to help you. No, it's not. Like, that history is already at your, you know, your ISP, your internet service provider, and so on. Um, you need a Hillary Clinton bleach bit, I think, and you need to wipe it with a cloth if you really want it gone. But uh, I'm just sitting here listening to this person. I'm going like, I'm un unbelievable. Stop talking to the FBI, people. And stop doing weird stuff, especially if they come talk to you. Just politely say, no, thank you. No, thank you. We're not taking me. If they're going to arrest you, they're going to arrest you. If they're going to search you, they're going to search you. You don't have to say anything about it. Just say, I invoke my right to counsel. I'd like to speak to an attorney. That's definitive, and it's over. That's the end of it. They can't talk to you after that. I've had people try to talk to me after that, and it's like, no, 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 no. I, I can't talk to you. You just told me you want an attorney. I have to wait. This drive is going to be in silence. I don't mind. Let's put on a podcast. We cannot talk about the thing that is related to your case once you tell me that. That's the that's the way that it's supposed to be done. And you will find that they'll, generally speaking, be honest. So that's not terrible. Now, here's the thing about Stephen Horn's video that bothers me, okay? The thing is, is that there's some other stuff that's out there, and there's some people that have not been charged at all. Now, he got probation, and he had a light sentence, and that's actually pretty good. He's got some fines, and they're not cheap. But he didn't have a public defender. He fought it correctly, and Stephen Horn basically got probation too. So even though he had four misdemeanor charges, he's not going to face jail time. Thank God, honestly. You saw that kid. He would get torn up. But this is also not facing any jail time, nor is it facing any prosecution. And you probably haven't heard this before. You probably haven't heard this. You ready? This is a radio call from Lieutenant Michael Byrd inside the United States Capitol on January 6th. Somebody that I would argue should have been investigated at least for whether or not the homicide was justified against Ashley Babbitt. And I don't think so. And this apparently was what he thought was going on. Just listen to the tone of voice and some of the information that's being shared. We got shots fired in the lobby. We got shots fired in the lobby of the House chamber. Shots are being fired at us. And we're prepared to fire back at them. We have guns drawn. Don't make sure we leave that in. Don't leave that in. I'm casting shots fired on the house floor again. I got an injured person. I believe that person was shot. Scott, one down. Civilian. We need EMPs. We need come through on the west side of the building up to the house lobby. Copy house. Five B. Get your copy. We copy house lobby west side individual. Have you heard that before? He said there were shots fired at them and they are prepared to return fire. He's the only one that shot that day. At the very least, he was mistaken and overcome by circumstances. We'd call that vapor lock sometimes in a training environment. They've just had too much going on. But instead, this is a guy who was bad with his weapon, who failed to maintain control of it. That's not a fireable offense for most federal agencies. You'll be shocked to learn. Losing your weapon in a public bathroom inside the Capitol is actually not a fireable offense. Um, if you did that in the FBI, you probably would get like five days suspension without pay. So that's kind of wild, and that happens. People lose rifles or, like, you know, whatever. But uh, a pattern of poor handling of weapons, a pattern of, you know, not being very capable, 
And that's why the whole diversity hire narrative about what the Capitol Police hires, which is not very capable people. Anybody who's really particularly serious, I don't know anybody that stayed in the Capitol Police. They use it as a springboard. There's people that were decent and they were there for a couple of years and they went and found another federal job. Because if you're serious about being in law enforcement, you don't want to be a security guard that just hangs out in the U.S. Capitol and is subservient to a non-executive branch where you can't go out and do law enforcement. That they don't, They're not investigative. They're security guards. They're national mall cops. I've said that enough times here. We've talked about it with Garrett O'Boyle. That's my take on it. I'm not particularly impressed with the United States Capitol Police. I would say they are slightly below the barrel of the people at D.C. Metro PD, which is one of the lowest barrels there is. It's at the bottom of the barrel. These D.C. Metro PD might be the bottom and U.S. Capitol Police might be under the barrel. It's not even in the barrel of law enforcement. At least D.C. Metro does some law enforcement activities. And even though they'll hire people with felonies, you know, people with felonies tend to know a little bit about crime. I'm just saying. <laughs> Take it for whatever it's worth. And yes, the city of D.C. will hire people with felonies in their backgrounds, including murder, it turns out, because I've arrested a actual convicted murderer who was working for the city of D.C. So that's where your tax dollars go. In the meantime, <clears throat> we have this. And this is kind of an interesting story in, in and of itself, but talking about things like uh, talking about being able to coerce people into testimonies, being able to go after um, sort of like entrapment type cases. Let's look at this story that broke the other day. 5,000 rounds of ammo found at an Arizona man's house accused of threatening to kill FBI agents. The guy's name is Michael Lee Tomasi. And they found three, they uncovered, <laughs> that's my favorite. I love NBC. By the way, this is not in their law enforcement section, and this is not in their, um, you know, I don't know what, what other section you would have, like, you know, national news. This is in their guns in America section, the guns in America, NBC News. And what are they talking about? 5,000 rounds of ammo. Like, no, no exaggeration. I have more than, hold on. I'm going to, I'm just going to do that. I don't normally share this, but look at this. I've got about eight of these. These are uh, bricks of 22. I have more than 5,000 rounds under my desk. Right now, I got more than 5,000 rounds of ammunition in this room within arm's reach of where I'm at. 5,000 rounds of ammunition. Get the hell out of here. Uh, they found an AR-15 style bazooka. I, I made that up, but my buddy and I agreed at one point in time that we would call all AR-15s bazookas because it's funny. And uh, and six loaded magazines. You remember that whether the magazine is loaded or not loaded. Uh, how loaded does it have to be? Is it fully loaded? Is it only 28 rounds because he wants to preserve the springs? And he has some idea that that might help. I mean, what are we talking about? This is a Smith & Wesson style AR-15. That's a budget AR-15. I've spent more money on optics than that rifle and the way he's got it set up. He had a loaded handgun. Oh, my God. A loaded handgun in Arizona? In his vehicle, no less? Holy moly. A constitutional carry state? Give me a break. And what was he? He was arrested for guns, right? I mean, that's obviously what's going on. There's gun charges. No. He was arrested for three counts of threats against a federal official. That's what you're seeing on the screen here. Three threats for threatening posts on social media. The so-called interstate threats. That's what they came after him for. And his trial is set to begin February 6th. He was arrested last month. 5,000 rounds and three guns and some loaded magazines in unsealed court documents. NBC is basically creaming themselves over this stuff. And, well, he did post extremist things, including saying that he wanted to target FBI agents, including a threat to shoot FBI agents on site. He posted, quote, shoot the FBI first, ask questions later. They are terrorists. They deserve nothing but to be shot on site. That's interesting. Is that considered a true threat under the true threat doctrine? 
you guys know about how this is supposed to work? There was actually a Supreme Court case in 1969 known as Watts versus United States. This is where you all should be reading. If you're not familiar with Watts versus U.S., this is worth your time. It goes back to the Vietnam era. It is a Vietnam War era case. Watts versus U.S. essentially established what we now know as the true threat doctrine, which is to say that every threat has to be evaluated. The reason why Watts was brought um he was arrested was he was arrested under the same thing that they actually killed that guy in Utah over threats to the president. There's a U.S. statute that says you cannot threaten the United States president. And this guy was a black anti 18 year old war protester. His name was Robert Watts. He was at an anti-war rally on the Washington Monument, and he was observed or overheard by the Army Counterintelligence Corps. <laughs> yeah, they had people in the crowd that day, too, it turns out. And they were Tens of thousands of people out there protesting against the Vietnam War in 1969, uh, sorry, 1966, in the early stages of the war. And so what was it that he said? He said, I'm going to quote the entirety of it because it's often only quoted the, like the little statement that was uh, the problem. But he said, they always holler at us to get an education. And now I've received my draft classification as 1A, which I assume meant that he was at the top of the list. And I've got a report for my physical this coming Monday. I'm not going. If they ever make me carry a rifle, the first man I want to get in my sights is LBJ. They're not going to make me kill my black brothers. That's the statement he made. It's considered a hypothetical, and it's considered not a true threat, even though he was arrested for it because they were trying to quash free speech. Right? And so there you have it. It's always happened. As I said, entrapment cases, these things, this was not entrapment. This was just an overhear. He said something publicly that is part of the political uh, debate. It's part of the free speech clauses you would have. And what's interesting is, is that the court said, yes, of course, that the 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 statement, the the entirety of that law that protects the president from legitimate threats, it's good. It's constitutional and we can have it. But what they also said was that political hyperbole is actually protected. That what a threat must be distinguished from is constitutionally protected speech. And that the language of po the political arena is often vituperative, abusive, and inexact. When you say what this guy said on NBC, when you say shoot the FBI first, ask questions later, would you say that that is inexact, vituperative, and abusive? That it is political hyperbole? He said they're terrorists that deserve nothing less to be shot on sight. Is that a true threat? Is that a man... Who's going to threaten the FBI? Do you know how I know it's not a true threat? Because the FBI came and arrested him without incident. They were able to take him into custody without incident. And he said, yeah, I was drinking. Which doesn't excuse your behavior. But it would be hard for you to argue that somebody is making a true threat by saying that. He also supposedly made a, uh, a post saying he wanted to torture federal officials to death. Wanted a federal congresswoman to have the horror of a violent rape. These are awful things. But being an awful sayer of things in the United States is constitutionally protected on purpose. It always has been. Because, as the Supreme Court rightly says in Watts v. U.S., 1969, this is not new. This predates my lifetime. The language of the political arena is often vituperative, abusive, and inexact. Without a plan, without a method to carry it out, without some ability that actually goes closer to conspiracy, we don't have the ability to carry out interstate threat cases, which is why the mass, the vast majority of these things are gone. Whenever they are they are uttered, they basically show up, they are investigated by the, uh, the agent who is assigned the lead, and they go away because we're like, person had no ability to carry this thing out. Person has no willingness to carry this thing out. You know, 
spoke while high on crack, as somebody just said in the chat. You can get away with an awful lot of things because it doesn't have the ability to actually counter carry them out. And that should be the number one thing that reasonable people do, unless you're not being reasonable, unless you are only interested in getting counterterrorism stats. And right now that's against uh, 266 Oscar Agaves, anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists, including this guy who supposedly threatens FBI agents per NBC. I highly recommend that you guys go and get yourself versed up on Watts versus U.S. That should be his defense in this case. It's allowed to be vituperative, vituperative, abusive, and inexact. The crude language of an offensive method of stating a political opposition. That's exactly the words that comes out. The court agreed that saying that he wanted to get his rifle sights on a U.S. president was the very crude, offensive method of stating political opposition to the president. And you can have the same thing to an executive agency would be my argument. I think it's foolish to think otherwise. It's really important that we do not discount how dangerous it is to try to just move these needles. Words are not violence, regardless of what, yeah, I saw what you saw there, uh, D. They're not violence, and they can't be considered violence, certainly not under U.S. law, and certainly not under the way that we actually uh, have adjudicated threats for so long. All right. Does that bug you? It bothers me in a big way. I don't like to see people arrested by the FBI, especially when they're going to go out there and claim that there are 5,000 rounds, like that's somehow a big deal. This, by the way, was one of the interactions I had with a counterterrorism agent in my office. He literally said, the number of guns and ammos that you have in your garage and in your house would be enough for me to open a CT case on it. And my buddy, who, thank God, actually appreciates the Constitution, pushed back because you don't want to be the guy pushing back on your on your own you know, colleagues. And he said, I'll take that case. And I just closed it. It's called the Second Amendment, dude. That guy also is a Green Beret, unconventional warfare. It's kind of nice to see that kind of stuff. Um, still a good person. There are decent people in the FBI. They are outnumbered and outgunned, and even the ones that are decent have told me they don't like being there, and even though that they do good work, doesn't mean that the agency should survive. That's the argument I've made with the blessing of people who work for the FBI. Anyone who argues against otherwise and says the FBI is necessary doesn't understand what the FBI does. All right, let's talk about something that is not the FBI for one second. Let's talk about my friends over at Patriot Coolers, uh, something that I used while I worked for the FBI, and they uh, never let me down. They're great, great company. PatriotCoolers.com. Use the promo code Kyle. You guys are touching the trend. K-Y-L-E saves you 10% if you want to buy any of their stuff. This is the one that I've got on the desk right now, including Suspendables merch stickers. This is the 19-ounce cooler or the 19-ounce tumbler. It is a coffee mug with a handle. It's nice if you're driving. You can reach over and grab it. It fits into a cup holder. Double-walled and insulated. Keeps things hot, including my coffee, and keeps things cold. How do it know? That vacuum insulated technology, which can only be made in China because our government is ineffective. Go to PatriotCoolers.com, a Houston company that does good things. They've reached out to us from the beginning, and all of their stuff is branded with the name Patriot. PatriotCoolers.com. Find them on social media at PatriotCoolers. I told you guys I was going to make you sick. I told folks in the chat before we got started that it's less comedy and more dry heaves, but that's what we're at right now. Um, and then let's talk about something that's even nastier. And I didn't realize this. There's some fantastic reporting going on over at public. This is Mike and Michael Schellenberger's a recovering liberal. And now I would say a politically homeless person, a lot like Matt Taibbi, a man who broke the Twitter files. This stuff is quite good. This stuff is very good. And so let's read from public. I have their uh, their paid subscription. If you guys want a good subscription, this is one of them that is quite good. And they have something that comes out every single day. This is Al Alex Gutentag uh, wrote this one with Zayed Jalini. I don't know who uh, Zayed is, but I've talked to Alex before. The, the article is 
false claims of quote-unquote insurrection began minutes after the January 6th Capitol riot suggests a disinformation plot. Key figures promoted the coup attempt narrative before January 6th. You know when things are a setup? Sometimes they just don't count on the, the amount of scrutiny that it, it's going to be subjected to. I've got a number of uh, individual quotes on here. I'm going to try to read most of them. I think they're worth seeing. All right. So this article uh, starts off saying that uh, former President Trump, who leads the polls right now, has been denied his place on the ballot in two different states, Colorado and Maine. They are the consequences of court decisions and state off officials and officers claiming that he's ineligible to the presidency thanks to a provision of the 14th Amendment that bars individuals who are, quote unquote, engaged in insurrection from serving as president. OK, that's where it all starts. It's the 14th Amendment prohibition on insurrection. That's why that word is important. The word insurrection is in and of itself important because of the 14th Amendment and what they believe they might be able to pull over. Again, a novel interpretation of 1512 when it comes to the Sarbanes-Oxley law saying that they disrupted an official proceeding and the novel interpretation that a riot that happened outside of a U.S. Capitol building and inside of it could somehow be construed as an insurrection when the previous use of the word insurrection, which they rightly name in this public article, was about the United States Civil War, where 600,000 people died. Five people died on January 6th. 600,000 people died in the Civil War that the word insurrection was previously used to describe. <clears throat> Think about the term insurrection. Have you ever heard it before January 6th of 2021? And the answer is likely no. What about sedition? Have you ever heard that before? It's not something that is commonly used in American politics. It's not something that is commonly used in any of the polite discussions that I've been around. And I lived in D.C. for five years, surrounded by people who cared about this kind of thing. I'd never heard anybody talk about it. To many Americans, this is simply a given. We're quoting the article here. Trump engaged in insurrection. People on the political left, the uh, the entirety. In fact, let me throw this up here before anything else. Lest you think that uh, these guys are speaking out of school, and I don't think you do. But look at this. This is the Washington Post, a leftist news mouthpiece. What's on there right there at the top of the screen? If you guys are not watching, what we are seeing is the January 6th insurrection page. It is a landing page. It's an entire section of WAPO's website that simply has January 6th stuff on it. And it's not even particularly interesting. Man who, who's the subject of J6 conspiracies, sentenced to probation. There's a Ray Epps piece on there. Uh, Trump trades Iowa rallies for a day in court. Trump tries reappropriating insurrection on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt story. Trump passively uh, encourages violence, and then he rationalizes it. There's a whole section. None of these things have to do with, like, case. If they were only covering cases, that'd be one thing. It's still absurd. They have an insurrection subpage because the narrative is critical for them preserving it. And Schellenberger rightly lands on this. They talk about the most seditious or the most serious charge was sedition, handful of defendants like Enrique Tarrio, who wasn't even physically present in Washington, D.C. at the day of the riot, but was convicted for his alleged role. Why? Because we need fall guys. When the Reichstag fire happens, we need to send the commies to jail. That's what the Nazis did. In this case, when the riot happened, it has to be insurrection. It has to be an attempt to overthrow the government. And most importantly, we got to have MAGA to get them going. Schellenberger points out, because he's fair, even though some of the messages in the Proud Boy group chats were overtly violent and hinted at action at the Capitol, none set forth an explicit plan to storm the building or to forcibly disrupt the election certification taking place inside. More importantly, what in the hell was the plan to take over the United States government? Because everything that I've ever seen, even the one that was, uh, you know, like Fed planted, the 1776 return story, 
All of that had to involve legal processes that you theoretically could actually use, and they were not based on violence, even if they were like disruptive by using a riot. It's all really wild, and it doesn't make any sense. But here's the things that I found very, very interesting on here. You'll notice the first, the first uh, paragraph that I've quoted, which is about halfway down in this particular page, under a section that they entitled, The Birth of a Conspiracy Theory. The earliest reference, we're quoting the piece again, the earliest reference to the term by a high-profile figure may have come from one of Trump's political foes. Oh, you're going to love this. Mitten's fellow Republican senator, Mitt Romney. Journalist Jonathan Martin tweeted at 2.53 p.m. on January the 6th that Romney told him, quote, this is what the president has caused today, this insurrection. According to the January 6th report, protesters entered the Capitol at 2.06 p.m. Eastern Time. So what is that? 40, 47 minutes later, Mitt Romney is calling it an insurrection? Wow. It's almost like he knew that word was important. A few minutes later at 3 p.m. on the nose, MSNBC quoted Martin's live tweet on air. So we started getting it going out there into the news media on the leftist sources. An hour and 40 minutes after the breach, Democratic Congresswoman Ted Deutsch joined in, describing the riot as a violent insurrection. And the narrative was crafted at 4.09 p.m. Florida Democratic Congresswoman, my favorite, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, ramen noodle hair, accused Trump of, quote unquote, encouraging armed insurrection. There we go. And then President Biden now endorsed the term uh, by saying at 4 p.m., it's not a protest. It's an insurrection. Everybody got the memo. 2.53, less than an hour after the thing had been breached and they were still clearing people out of the Capitol at 2.53. Mitt Romney calls it an insurrection, then a, a Florida Democrat, and then Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and then the president-elect at the time. The first time Biden used the term, much of the press reported it as something that president-elect said. President-elect Joe Biden calls the Capitol riot insurrection, says USA Today. Wall Street Journal picked it up. Biden calls the attack on the Capitol an insurrection. That was a headline as well. And by 7 p.m. that day, news anchor, we are learning today that today's insurrection, it's already assumed that CNN picked it up by 7 p.m., like five hours later. Rachel Maddow said the same thing. Shocker. And then, of course, Washington Post started their insurrection page, and it began after that. The narrative was being crafted pretty aggressively, folks. That's some heavy-handed stuff. There's no other way to call it. That is heavy-handed nastiness. Is it not? I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know how you square that with reality, if that's what you believe when it was crafted that way. And thank God for guys like Michael Schellenberger who are out there trying to be fair-minded, who are out there looking at this stuff that are going back and analyzing it. Very interestingly enough, too, you saw another little piece on the screen here. Two things. Number one, uh, Moonshot CVE. It was a key player in the censorship industrial complex. That's sort of his bugaboo. That's what he focuses on. They formed a crisis team the day before the riot. Why? These are people that were funded by Obama Foundation stuff. They had people that had participated in Obama's, Obama's uh, Leaders for Europe program and so on. And they spent their time, this is an organization that apparently has been working on domestic violent extremism for years, causing it, entrapping it, creating it. I don't know. They've been working on it, whatever that means. And in the run-up to the election in the months that follows, it wasn't a surprise that this attack happened. Yeah, we know. What's surprising is that the government wasn't ready for it. Why is that? That seems problematic to most of us. All right, I got a couple things that are going to make you sick. Speaking of narratives, we got to craft it. We got to put it out there. We, uh, 
we'd be foolish if we didn't share with you this this very impressive song that is now in my head, and I don't want to be the only one who has to deal with it. And it is uh, apparently composed, written by these two lovely individuals, these lovely ladies. You guys know who they are. This is uh, not Ida B. Wells. This is uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote the 1619 Project. So a fiction writer and another fiction writer who wrote romance novels, including one called Rogue Justice. Stacey Abrams, two of my least favorite people. They created a song that I will play for you that was played and uh, sung by a Unitarian church. Okay, this is not your palate cleanser, so just stand by. The Unitarian church choir sang this. This was sang in a church of all places. And we have to listen to it. If you can't figure out what they're saying, watch the captions on screen. If you need to go to about, uh, where are we at? We're about 75 minutes into the podcast. If you want to come in and watch on the Rumble channel, it's rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. You guys can follow there. Make sure you've given us a thumbs up if you're watching. Here we go. Don't turn up the volume. You'll be sick. Here, let's play it. Hmm. Wrong button. <laughs> Video five coming at you. Nothing in there rhymed. That's like some of the worst lyricism I've ever seen in my life. But the music is kind of catchy and it will stay with you. And now you're going to wonder, do your rights depend on the state that you reside in? And do they do they uh, depend on whether or not you can afford valid ID? Imagine putting all that together and being like, yep, we got it. We're killing it. That was Stacey Abrams. Uh, it doesn't make me want to read her prose. Her poetry is crap. And uh, fake Ida B. Wells, also known as Nicole Hannah-Jones, composing the dumbest piece of 
choral music that I've ever seen. And as you all accurately pointed out, everyone in there is wearing a mask. Pretty gross, except the one person who's not singing, which is also really funny. And uh, yeah, that, that little Star Wars trick they did, like they put that together. They, they published that. They're proud of what they did. It's amazing. And I guess that led me to thinking about white privilege and, uh, you know, the fact that all white people are singing about this. By the way, that right they're talking about, for the most part, it's the right to vote. But more importantly, they're talking about the right to abortion, which is also really disgusting to me. Uh, how about this lady whose name is Jasmine? She's either named for a stripper or for a tea that I'm a big fan of. It's good tea, Jasmine tea. And Crockett, who was a hero of the Alamo in here in Texas. So she has some either Asian cultural appropriation and Tennessean white frontiersman cultural appropriation. She's going to do a, a little lecture. I need you guys to have one more little taste of nasty, and then then we'll do something that's a little bit uh, cleaning. We'll get there. We're, we're working on it. But uh, let's, let's hear what one of my favorite congresswomen had to say. She represents Dallas. She previously was on the show talking about how much she hated people in Texas and how we're deplorable. Let's hear what... Uh, Real Housewives of South Oak Cliff, Jasmine Crockett, has to say about white privilege. And maybe just take it to heart. Don't you lecture her about things coming from the GOP side of the aisle. She's a Democrat the party of the Klan. <laughs> you can't make these people up. Something that I just can't get over. I can't get over the gentle lady from South Carolina talking about white privilege. It was a spit in the face at least of mine as a black woman, for you to talk about what white privilege looks like, especially from that side of the aisle. And let me quote your now ousted speaker and what he had to say about the Republican Party and y'all's lack of diversity. When you look at the Democrats, they actually look like America. When I look at my party, we look like the most restrictive country club in America. So let me tell you something. Y'all don't know what white privilege looks like, but I'm going to show you a little bit of something. You see, you want to talk about a two-tier justice system, and this is the only time that y'all have ever referenced it, when this country has a history, when it comes to black and brown folk, of having two separate sets of rules. And right now, what you want to do is have two separate sets of rules, because Mr. Moskowitz offered y'all a fair situation. He said he would vote for Hunter to be held in contempt if y'all voted to hold all, even if you remove all of the members of Congress. There's still other people that y'all haven't decided that y'all have excuses for, but y'all don't want to hold them in contempt. But for some reason, it makes sense to hold Hunter Biden in contempt, who has tried to comply. And let me tell you why nobody wants to talk to y'all behind closed doors, because y'all lie. That's okay, I want to do a point of order. The, the, the gentlewoman from Texas has used the word y'all too many times in the same sentence, and that is a point of order. We'd like to uh, correct that. This is uh, against our uh, parliamentary rules. Can I get a ruling on that? It's amazing. Um, when you're defending a crackhead, is what that, that, that little piece was written on my show notes here. When you defend a crackhead who's a really rich white guy, it's a really weird thing to do. That's why the 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 the, the whole point of uh, of white privilege is brought up, lest anyone think that there's a racial tinge to what we're saying. When white people are screaming about, they're singing a song written by uh, dumb black women and, and and talking about racism, and then we've got that poor nonsense. You know, there are people who are intelligent in Congress. It turns out it's irrelevant, like what color their skin is. It's absolutely irrelevant. And here's a sober take by someone. Let's hear a little bit from uh, Byron Donald spelling out like, hey. Uh, if you get served a subpoena, you're supposed to show up, even if you're the president's son. Let's just hold people to the basic standards. Let's try to have a rule of law that is based on fairness and not based on like rich crackheads sliding out on things. Here we go. 
Oh, wrong one. Sorry about that one. <laughs> what number am I on? This is, uh, oh, Byron Dolls, number six. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, America, this is ridiculous. The Biden family has no business. They've never had a business except for politics. And the one thing that the Oversight Committee, in conjunction with the Ways and Means Committee and in conjunction with the Judiciary Committee, has always been able to demonstrate is that they shook down foreign nations for millions, millions, 26 million at the latest count and growing millions. And there was never any business entity involved except public corruption and a pay for play scheme. The House Oversight Committee would like to get to the bottom of this under the impeachment inquiry of the House. We have questions for Hunter Biden. We issued a subpoena for him to answer said questions. He ignored a congressional subpoena as a private citizen. There are many attorneys on the other side of the aisle. If you had one of your clients in your private practice ignore a congressional subpoena as a private citizen, you would advise them not to because they would be held in contempt and they would actually be punished by the Department of Justice. So I find that interesting well, to see today. Yields, I'm respond. not going to yield, Mr. Goldman, because I had a question for you earlier. You didn't want to take my question, so I'm not going to take yours. Thank you. <laughs> so in closing, I will say private citizens, yes, they have a responsibility to answer congressional subpoenas. They do. Hunter Biden had it and he was flagrant. He decided to give a press conference. So we're going to do this business, and he should be held in contempt by the full House of Representatives. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Love it. I also love it when Dan Goldman is shut down. Very simple. The man said things that are true. He said words in orders that are an English sentence. He didn't have to rely on flashy nails and crazy fake hair, which is also cultural appropriation. Just, just common sense, common decency, saying things that are true. That's what I wanted to wrap up on. I do have a palate cleanser for you, though. Uh, it's a weird world out there. I had a couple of people, including um, some folks that you may know that are like political influencers or whatever, and they hit me up, females, and they were like, do we know who these people are? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, ask them if they're single. I'm not into this world that you guys deal with. Uh, people stalking you online. That's like your business. You've made your looks part of the game. But I do think there's come, kind of fun out there. Uh, women, some of you do some really weird stuff. We don't hate it. My wife is one of the goofiest people that nobody will ever find out because the stuff she does is goofy behind closed doors. This little, this woman filmed this video and it made me laugh. So I'm sharing it with you as we go off into the day. You guys can watch this. Our little palate cleansing taste before we do our uh, five-star review. Enjoy. And uh, if you are this lady or you're a lady who is like this, you know, you can let that kind of stuff be seen. Men are not scared by your uh, by your weird stuff, particularly when it's particularly charming. I think this definitely is that. So enjoy. So I'm about to go on a dirt, and uh, I have to get all my weirdness out before I see him, cause I wanna I wanna impress him. He's so awesome. I don't even know what that is. Those noises coming out of that lady is so strange. But I do I do like it, I, especially if you're going to sing like random things. That's 100% a Seraphim household deal. Uh, yeah, just get your weirdness out before your date. But, you know, don't hide that stuff forever because that's that's gold. Anyway, uh, and if you're if you're decent looking, then uh, nobody cares. That turns out to be men. We're, we are not easily dissuaded <laughs> by your weird ideas. As long as you keep your crazy away, your weird is fine. That's what I'm going to say. All right, let's do a five-star review here and let's shut this thing down. So one of you really liked the Stoopball episode, which had uh, my friend Sal Greco on there. This is from Sully42. Stoopball, five stars. I grew up in Brooklyn in the 1950s. For all of you who were uh, upset about it, how about this? Okay, Stickball was played by with a Spalding ball 
because the brand had a lot of bounce. Everybody in Brooklyn called it a Spalding. As to stoop ball, that word is from the Dutch, and it means steps or sidewalk. You can throw a Spalding at the edge of the steps. The other kids would stand in the street to catch it. One bounce before catching it as a single, two bounces, a double, so on. Uh, we had great games back then because we played outside every day. We went home. When the streetlights came on in the 1950s, it was a wonderful time to be a kid. It's a crying shame that today Brooklyn is so crime-ridden and filled with Marxist money. That's from Nancy and Jim Sullivan, expats from Brooklyn. You know, you guys wonder why we show certain things, why we don't show certain things. That's why we show it, because everybody's got a little bit of different taste. And if we brought back a little bit of that 1950s Brooklyn feel for you, I can definitely appreciate it. I'm glad that people enjoyed it. It was a mixed bag, but uh, yeah. You know what? Things were better when you got to play outside. You got to know who your neighbors were. That's kind of what it was. Even my wife told me that growing up in the 80s, she knew everybody on her block. Go out there and meet your neighbors, folks. It continues to be the thing that we tell you is the right answer, and it is the right answer, because if you know your neighbors, then you will have less crazy, and you will not be worrying about whether your rights depend on some nonsense that is sung in a crazy, crazy Unitarian church written by Stacey Abrams, of all people, for God's sake. All right, we'll see you again tomorrow for a friendly Friday. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. God bless you, be safe, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rubble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.